Book Three, Chapter Eighteen of Clara Vaughan, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra. Clara Vaughan, Volume Two by R. D. Blackmore. Book Three, Chapter Eighteen. Chapter Eighteen. Cold and fresh was the morning air, and the open window invited the sounds of country life. Who could think of fever with the bright dew sparkling on the lawn, the lilac buds growing fat enough to claim their right of shadow, the pleasant ring of the sharpening scythe, and the swishing sweep of the swathe? From the stable-yard, round the corner, came the soothing hiss of the grooms, the short stamp of the lively steed, I fancied I knew my own favourite, Leela. Stand still, Mayor Woolley. Far down the avenue whistled the cowboy, waddle-footed on his way to the clover-lays, or the milkmaid sung with the pail on her hip, and the deer came trooping and stooping their horns along. Was it not one of my own pet robins who hopped on the window-sill, peered bravely at himself in the jug, and tried to remember the last of his winter notes. But it is cold, Jane, very cold indeed, and we have never been to bed, and now the mowers have descried us. Why do they stop their work and shake their heads together so, and keep outside the ranunculus bed, and agree that the grass beneath our windows does not require cutting? Why, if they were papists, they would cross themselves, and that saves many an oath. But the grass does want cutting, Jane. It cannot have been cut for a week. I will call to them. No, it might disturb my uncle. There is no sound from the bedroom yet, all deep and deadly silence. I will go and see. There my patient lies, just as when I saw him first, except that I have arranged the wreck of his hoary locks, and applied a lotion to his temple on the burning side. And yet, now I look closer, the face is not quite so livid, or is it the difference between the candlelight and the morning ray? Even while I looked, he started up, as if my eyes revived him. He did not moan or cry, but opened wide his filmy eyes, and gazed feebly and placidly at me. For a time he did not know me, then a great change gradually crept through his long, faltering gaze. Fearing the effects of excitement upon him, I tried to divert his attention by another good dose of yeast. Three times he took it with resignation, like a well-trained child, but his eyes all the time intent on me. Presently they began to swim and swerve, the effort of the faint blood-tissued brain and the exertion of swallowing had been too much for his shattered powers. He fell off again into the comatose state, but with a palpable difference. The pulse, which had throbbed on the hot side only, could now be felt most feebly moving in the other wrist, and the tension of the muscles was relaxed. Circulation was being restored and balanced, and the breathing could now be traced short as it was, and irregular. 
I have not time to describe all the symptoms of gradual improvement, and I have not the medical knowledge needful to do so clearly. Enough that the six-hour interval was shortened that day by half, that the breathing became more regular, and a soft perspiration broke through the clogged and clammy pores. Jane wanted to second this by an additional blanket, but I feared to allow it, in case of so utter prostration. When the perspiration was over, then I prescribed the blanket, for fear of a chill reaction. At every return of consciousness our patient made an effort to speak, but I hushed him with my hand on his lips, and he even managed to smile when he found that I would be obeyed. In the evening he tried to open his arms to me, and then tried to push me away in some faint recollection of the nature of his disorder. To me the interest was so intense, and the delight so deep, that if I had lost him now, it would surely have broken my heart. At sunset of that day, as Nurse and I sat near the dressing-room window, watching the slant rays flickering on the sward, and the rooks alighting and swinging over their noisy nests, a black cloud hung for a moment just above the sun, a black cloud with a vivid edge of gold. It tempered the light in a peculiar manner, and seemed to throw it downwards. Peering through my fingers at it, for it was very beautiful, I saw a whitish mist, or vapour, steaming and hovering above the disk of the setting sun, between my eyes and that golden marge. I wondered what this could be. There was no heat to cause strong evaporation, nor any mist or dewy haze about, nor was the sun drawing water. But what I saw was like that trembling twinkle of the air which we often observe on a meadow footpath in the hot forenoon of July. I drew Jane's attention to it, not expecting any solution, but just for something to say. Dear me, miss, don't you know what that is? I see it every evening. It will be twice as plain when the sun goes down, and then it will be quite white. Well, what is it? Why can't you tell me? Is everything here a secret? I was rather irritable, but vexed with myself for being so. Too much excitement and too little sleep were the causes. No, miss, there's no secret at all about that. Everyone knows what that is. It's only the scum that rises through the grass from the arched pool that takes all the drains of the house. Some of the arch fell in, they say, and the ground shakes when they mow it. They are afraid to roll there. Is it possible? And you knew it? A practised nurse like you? Did my uncle know it? I'm sure, miss. I can't tell. Most likely not, or he would have had it mended. He hates things out of repair. But it can't do any harm with the mould and the grass above it. Can't it, indeed? And you can see it rise? Shut all the bedroom windows in a moment, Jane. I'll shut this. She thought my wits were wandering from what I had gone through. Nevertheless, she obeyed me. It happened that I had attended, at Isola's urgent request, one lecture of the many delivered by Dr. Ross. She forgot what the subject was to be. It proved to be an unsavoury and unladylike. One Mephitis. 
Isola wanted to run away, but I have none of that nonsense about me when human life is concerned, and listened with great attention, and even admiration, for he handled the matter eloquently and well. Now, Jane, throw all the doors open and the lobby window that looks in the other direction. When do you think it will be possible to move our poor patient from these rooms? The air here is deadly poison. Well, I'm sure, miss, and he couldn't have a nicer nor a more airy room, and all my things in order too, and so handy, and so many cupboards. Out of this poison he must go. When can he be moved? Well, miss, he might be moved to-morrow, if we could only get plenty of hands and do it cleverly. Surely we can have plenty of hands. There used to be twenty-five servants here, and I have not heard that my uncle has lessened the number. No, miss, but save and keep us. We shan't get one of them here. Nonsense. I will have them, or they leave the house. Of course I won't peril their lives. We should only want two or three, and they may take a bath of disinfecting stuff with all their clothes on before they come, and they may smoke all the while. The nurse laughed grimly and shook her grey head. And we will fumigate. Jane, fumigate tremendously. Surely Englishmen have more self-respect than to be such babies. And you a woman, and I a girl, shaming them out of face. It doesn't matter, miss. They won't come. I know them well. The lot, I mean, that are in the house now. Very well, Jane. We'll have Gamekeeper Hyatt and his eldest son. They are men, I know, and if that is not enough, we'll send to Gloucester for Thomas Henwood. But why don't you open the lobby door, as I told you? If you please, miss, I can't. They have fastened it outside. Do you mean to say that they have dared to lock us in? Indeed I do, miss. We have been fastened in since the morning. And pray, why did you not tell me? Because I feared to excite you, miss, I know your temper when you are wronged, ever since you were that high, and in this fever air excitement is sure to kill you. Brutes! But I suppose they don't know it. They know it well, at least the master spirit does, and for that very reason I will crush my indignation. Since I was that high, Jane, I have passed through much tribulation, and have dropped my lady heiress tone. I can now command myself. Then, miss, I will show you what they sent this morning, round the handle of the coffee jug. I was afraid to let you see it before. She gave me a twist of paper, on which was written as follows. For the safety of the household, Mrs. Fletcher orders that the persons in the fever room be allowed no communication with the other servants. The intercepting door is fastened, because a most sinful, unchristian act was perpetrated last night. Due supplies will be delivered once a day at 10 a.m. No empty vessels and no correspondence received. Any attempt to break these rules will be punished by suspension of supplies. Servants are forbidden to come beneath the sick-room windows. May the Lord have you in his keeping, in his tender mercy, according to his holy will. You are requested to read Philippians 1, 8 to 11, inclusive. There are three holy Bibles on the drawers and dressing tables. 
when I had read this and perceived by the blasphemy at the end that it could proceed from no other than that awful woman, I confess that my spirit was cowed within me. Not from selfish fear, nor yet from the taming of passion, but from the lowering thought that I belonged to the same race of being as the author of such satanity. Presently I became too indignant to speak, or even think, it added, if that were possible to my indignation, that I had seen her leave the house about nine o'clock that morning in our best close carriage. She kept the windows up until she was past the lawn and the light iron gates, beyond the arcade of roses. Then, at the first turn in the avenue, she let down the glass and gracefully kissed her hand to me. I did not believe, however, that she was gone back to Cheltenham, with so much at stake in our house, and depending on her direction, she would surely stop in the neighbourhood, if only to watch the course of events. Sooner than I dared to expect, I regained the command of myself. Horror within me was stronger than wrath, and stronger than either became the resolve to survive and win. There can be no God, I exclaimed in my presumptuous ignorance, if this scheme of the devil is permitted to triumph. First I tried the door which severed us from the rest of the house. My uncle's rooms were in the western wing, very near those which my dear mother had occupied, and not very far from my own. They formed one floor of the western gable. The three bedroom windows and that of the dressing room looked to the west, while the great lobby window, from which I had seen Mrs. Daldy's departure, looked southward along the avenue, the curve of which could be seen also from the bedroom windows. An oaken door at the end of the main passage cut off the rooms in this story of the gable from all the rest of the house. This door Jane had left locked from the inside, fearing lest others should lock her in, as they had threatened to do. But now we found that a strong iron bolt had been fixed upon the outside while we were asleep in the morning, and that we had no chance of forcing it. Next, I asked Jane whether she thought that the house, now Mrs. Daldy was gone, would be still in the hands of our enemies. Would not Mrs. Fletcher at once reassert her authority? Might not Matilda Jenkins be expected to fly to the rescue? The nurse, knowing all the politics of the servants' hall, assured me that there was no hope of either of these events. Robert, a drunken Wesleyan, turned out of the sect in Cheltenham, was Mrs. Daldy's lieutenant, and would take all care of Matilda, to whose good graces he had been making overture. As for Mrs. Fletcher, she was probably in the same plight as ourselves. From what I heard about Robert, I began to believe that he had private orders to disown me at the station, for the double purpose of yielding a tit-bit of insolence and warning of my arrival. However, that mattered very little, but out of those rooms I must get, either by door or by window, and that too without delay. Do they expect to triumph so easily over Clara Vaughan, and in her father's house? The windows were about twenty feet from the ground, as nearly as I could guess, and the rooms beneath were empty. 
At once I resolved to attempt an escape that way, and to do so before the moon, which was southing now, should shine on the western aspect. Good Jane was terrified at the thought, and then, upon my persisting, implored me to let her make the attempt, if it must be made at all. Now, Jane, no more, if you please. We can't waste time about that. You have a husband partly dependent upon you, and several children to think of. For me, nobody cares. But I hoped somebody did. And you know I am far more active and much lighter than you are. Help me out with the feather bed. The little bed in the dressing-room, which she had to sleep on, was speedily brought to the window and dropped just underneath it. It fell upon the grass with a pleasing and quiet flop. Then the two strong bell-ropes, already cut down and plaited together, were tied round the bars of the double window sashes, the lower sash being thrown up to the full extent. The glass pressed quietly out with a pair of wet towels, and the splinters removed, so as not to cut the rope. The latter still failed to reach more than halfway to the ground, but I would venture the drop if I could only descend so far. After winding a linen sheet around my body and dress, with the end tied round one ankle, so as to leave me free use of my limbs, I sat upon the window-sill in the broad shadow and calculated my chances. Should I begin in the descent with face or with back to the wall? Face to the wall I resolved on, for though I should have to drop backwards so, Yet what I feared most of all was having the back of my head crushed against the house. Next to this, I dreaded a sprain of the ankle, but all our family are well knit and straight in the joint. So I launched myself off, beginning as gently as could be, Jane having firm hold of one hand until I was well on the voyage. Though not well versed in calisthenic arts, I got on famously almost as far as the end of the rope, keeping away from the wall by the oversailing of the window-sill and the rapid use of my feet. Then I rested a moment on a projecting ledge called, I believe, a stringing course, and away hand below hand again. But I struck my knuckles terribly against that stringing course, and very nearly lost hold from the pain of the blow. Then, bending my body forward, I gave one good push at the wall, and shutting both eyes, I believe, let go the rope altogether. Backward I fell and rolled over upon the feather bed. I was not even stunned, but feared for a moment to try if my limbs were sound. There I sat and stripped off the winding sheet. Presently up I got, and in my triumph, alas, I could not help crying, All right, hooray, like a foolish little child. In a moment I saw that my cry had been heard where it should not have been. A rapid flitting of lights along the lower windows and in the stable yard, and I knew that chase would be given. But after leaving my father's house in such a dignified manner, was it likely that I would give in and be caught? Now, Clara, you could beat all your nurses in running, off and away like the wind. Away I went full speed toward the shade of the avenue, while Jane had the wit to scream out of the window, Help! Help! Here's the house on fire! This made some little diversion. I had a capital start, and it was but half a mile to the lodge where old Whitehead lived. 
Once there I should care for nobody. I must have escaped very easily, for my feet seemed as swift as a deer's. But as my luck would have it, the light iron gates between the lawn and the park were fastened. What on earth should I do? I saw men running across the lawn, and what was worse, they saw me. In vain I pulled at the gates. They rattled but would not yield. Had I owned true presence of mind, I should have walked boldly up to the men and dared them to touch me fresh from the fever room. In the flurry of the moment I never thought of that, but darted into the shrubbery and crouched among thick laurels. Presently I heard them rush down the main drive and begin the search, with some heavy swearing. Two of them came to the very clump I was hiding in and pushed a pitchfork almost into my side, but the stupid fellows had lanterns which blinded them to the moonlight. On they went with grumblings and growlings which told me exactly where to shun them. Judging at length from the silence that the search had passed to the right, I slipped from my tangled lair and glided away to the left, beyond the shrubbery spring, where a little gate, as I knew, led to a glade in the park. The deep ha-ha which I had feared to jump in the dark because of the loose stones at the bottom was here succeeded by a high oak paling, and probably through that gate had come the murderer of my father. With a cold shudder at the remembrance, I stole along through the shadowy places, and had almost reached the little gate when I saw two of the searchers coming straight towards me. To the right of me was the park paling, on the left a breastwork of sod, which I could not climb without being clearly seen. To fly was to meet the enemy. Should I yield and be baffled after all, insulted too most likely, for I knew that the men were tipsy. In my hand was the tightly wound sheet, used as a rope to confine my dress. I had folded it short and carried it, on the chance of its proving useful. In a moment I was under the palings in deep shadow, with the white sheet thrown around me, falling from my forehead and draped artistically over the right arm. Stock still I stood against the black boards, and two great coils of long black hair flowed down the winding sheet. The men came up, tired of the chase and grumbling, and by their voices I knew them for my good friends, Jacob and Bob. Suddenly they espied a tall white figure of tremendous aspect. They stopped short, both tongue and foot, and I distinctly heard their teeth chatter. With a slow and spectral motion, I raised my draped white arm and fetched a low, sepulchral moan. Down fell the lantern, and with a loud yell, away went the men, as hard as their legs could carry them. Laughing heartily, I refolded my sheet, and taking the shortcut across the park to the lodge, where old Whitehead lived, arrived, without having met even my old friend Tulip. The old man, in hot indignation, drew forth his battered musket, for he had once been in the militia, and swore that he would march upon the robes at once. Instead of that, I sent him for the two Hyatts and the village constable, and soon, without invitation, half the village attended. 
with my torn dress tucked up by good Mrs. Whitehead, and a hat on my head, newly bought for her clean little grandchild, I set forth again in the moonlight, at the head of a faithful army, to recover my native home. Hyatt easily opened the gate, which had defied my flurried efforts, and we presented ourselves at the main entrance, a force that would frighten a castle. It is needless to say that we carried all before us. The state of siege was rescinded. Mrs. Fletcher and Tilly set free. All the ringleaders turned away, neck and crop, and what was far more important, my poor uncle removed, without being conscious of it, to a sweet and wholesome room. The sturdy Gloucestershire yeoman scorned all idea of danger. Tired with all my adventures, before I slept that night, still near my uncle's bed, two reflections came dreamily over my mind. The first was a piece of vanity. Ah, Mrs. Doldy, you little know Clara Vaughan. The second was, dear me, how Conrad would be astonished at this, and how strange that his father should thus have saved my uncle's life, for he must have died if left in that noisome room. End of Book 3 Chapter 18